your Division II champions, Grand Valley State. Congratulations to the Lakers. For the sixth time in program history, they are the national champions. Grand Valley has its third national championship in four years. Grand Valley State celebrating a national championship in Division II. It's the Ankara Podcast, presented by the Grand Valley Sports Network. What is up, Laker Nation? Welcome back to another edition of the Anchor Up Podcast. Today is Thursday, September, what, 17th already? Time's Crazy. flying by. Time's flying by. Can't believe it. We're midway through September already. Jake Levy, Tim Knott here with you for week two of the Anchor Up Podcast. Before we get started here, we remind you that the Anchor Up Podcast is brought to you by Metro Health the official sports medicine provider of GVSU Athletics, your health, our passion. We've got a great show for you here today. Not only are we going to go through those three NFL players that played their opening weekend this past weekend, we're going to talk about Family Day coming up this year. We've got some great team of the week, moment of the week, some really fun stuff. But the big piece, Tim, that conversation we had with Tim Selgo, you guys are going to hear the first part of it here today on the podcast. Boy, was that a lot of fun. Well, we asked three questions, and he went for one hour. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was crazy. True. I mean, he answered our questions before we could answer, before we could ask him, which is crazy. I'm I'm, I'm looking at you saying I'm going to ask this, and then within like 10, 15 seconds, he would go into the answer of the question. I, so so it was a great interview, a lot of fun, a lot of reminiscing, um, looking back through his thought process, and uh, it, it was easy to see um, at, when you listen to this, easy to listen to. Uh, why he was so successful in building the Grand Valley State Athletic Department. Absolutely. Just hearing some of the stories he has, some of the ways he thinks, just like kind of he foresaw your questions coming. Yeah. That's the kind of the forward thinking that he had when he came to Grand Valley. So we'll talk about his 20-year tenure. He talks a lot about Brian Kelly, talks a lot about some decisions he made, how the school grew with athletics, all that great stuff coming up a little later on. But first, let's talk about that NFL recap because – Three former Lakers all playing in the NFL this past weekend. We start with Nick Kaiser. Tim played a lot. Played a ton uh, in terms of their two their two uh, tight end sets with uh, with Kelsey. Uh, had some key blocks on some scoring plays. Did a great job. I know I, I I texted him that night and you know congratulated him on the first NFL win as a player and he was excited and he said it was a lot of fun and uh, you know he's looking forward to uh, uh, greater things for the season. Sure, and we saw some heat blocked J.J. Watt one-on-one. Yeah. He made a tackle on special teams, all those great things that he did, the little things that we talk about all the time that make tight ends at Grand Valley so successful, and Nick was a great champion of that and carries it over to the NFL like we knew he would. Matt Judon and that Ravens defense, boy, they just picked up right where they left yeah, off to. Yeah, they, they, they looked impressive offensively. They looked good. That's a team that's gonna obviously going to uh, uh, be in the title hunt. And it's kind of, you know, you look – you look at that. You have the Ravens and the Chiefs in the same in the AFC. Uh, you know, possibly a Nick Kaiser versus Matt Judon. You could have those guys going against each other. Nick Kaiser having to block Matt, Matt Judon in in their scheme in the uh, championship game, possibly. Boy, that's way down the road, but that's a, a heck of a thought there to think about two Lakers going at it in a big stakes situation like that. And then speaking of big stakes, Brandon Carr, unbelievable. The guy was signed a week ago, and somehow he is fit and ready and smart enough to dress for the game and be on the active roster. That's just incredible. Not only has the Iron Horse played those 192 games, 192 starts, then a last-minute addition to the Cowboys. He's just a depth guy, but when they look at their roster and say, who are going to be those two covid added guys well of course one of them is going to be Brandon well, yeah he never moved from uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area when he that's where he, when he went went from Kansas City to the Cowboys that's where he bought his house that's where he lived even when he was playing for the Ravens his family stayed there he would go to Baltimore and and, and play during the season so he stayed there um, you know mentally the Cowboys know what they're getting you know he's a pro's pro he's going to be able to pick things up in their scheme they have some new uh, you know coordinators but he, you know he's going to be where he's supposed to be, when he's supposed to be there, on the field, um, a great leader uh, of the young men in, uh, on their team. So I'm not surprised that they did that in, in terms of signing him. You know he's going to come in in shape. You know he's ready to go. And uh, something happens, boom, he's pushed into duty. And he sure could handle. You know, watching NFL this weekend, of course it felt great 
to see the NFL back, but it still felt kind of weird to me, Tim. I know Kansas City had some fans. I know Jacksonville had some fans. But outside of that, there were empty stadiums all across the NFL, and it was just kind of an eerie sense watching those games. As Bill Belichick said, it felt like practice. It felt like one of those inner squad where they're having that combined team practice. They bring in a, you know an opponent, and they practice together for two or three days. That's what it looked like. That's what it kind of felt like. Um, but uh, I, I was surprised by the quality of football. I thought the quality of the football was really good. Um, uh, the tackling aspect of it probably maybe felt like at times more like the Pro Bowl game. Just kind of trying to get you down. I don't want to hit you too hard. Once we get in we're, the same yeah, vicinity. Yeah, we're like, call, oh, you're going to fall good. down. Yeah. I'm good. You're good. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, you, you saw the guys you expected to perform, perform. Patrick Mahomes, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a Lamar Jackson. Those guys are athletes. They're great players, and they really rose to the occasion. And, uh, you know, we'll see. Their, their cases in terms of negative tests are amazing, the way they're taking care of it, the way that they're, you know, moving it forward, forging through. Um, it's impressive, and uh, congrats to them. Yeah, the, for sure. The NFL. I, I think you talked about the feeling like practice thing, but we heard it from Tim Selgo how important the atmosphere is to a college football game. And you know, he said when Lubber Stadium was basically a high school stadium, it felt like you were going to a high school game. Mm-hmm. But as it grew, as it expanded, as more fans were coming in, you're playing at night under the lights with that atmosphere, that's when things really kind of changed. And I thought that was an interesting tie between the atmosphere, the growth of the school, and they kind of one hand washing the other. Making a great atmosphere made it fun for the students, also made it fun for the players, helped in recruiting, and the wheels started turning, and all of a sudden you got to the early 2000s when football became a runaway dynasty. Well, it, it really did, and Tim will, will go into in, in, in the conversation with him, um, you know, kind of what he saw there and, and his vision forward. Um, but, yeah, obviously winning, winning really trumped everything. You know, when, when Grand Valley went to the night games, they went to playing off-site games, uh, with that came Kurt Ains, David Kirkus, uh, Brent Lesniak, Reggie Spearman. Started the ball rolling. You know, we're in the 2001 season, we're up 56 zag on Minnesota Crookston at the half. Um, you know, a lot of those guys never even uh, saw the field in the second half of those games. That just breeded success. The students got excited. They started showing up in droves. And, uh, you know, before you know it, you got the, uh, you're going to the national championship game in 2001 and winning the title in 2002. Anchor Up Podcast brought to you in part by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Here for you now more than ever. Confidence comes with every card. Also brought to you in part by NovaCare. Discover the power of physical therapy, the official physical therapy provider of GVSU Athletics NovaCare. This is the Anchor Up Podcast. It's week two, and Tim Selgo will be on a little bit later. We're really excited to get to that podcast interview, but... Another good news, you can probably hear it in the background. We're high in the rafters in the press box in the field house and looking down over the court where the GVSU women's basketball team, fresh off that incredible year a year ago, finally back to working out. You can hear some basketballs dribbling, and that's what this week's big news is on campus, Tim. The athletes can get back to some training. Boy, it's fun to watch. You know, you know we've been out of practices, getting some video, talking to some kids. It's great seeing these ladies out here. Uh, you know, that's They're here to get an education. They're here to to play basketball and uh, this is what they really want to do they want to get back in the court get get to their craft get you know in, in preparation of the season in 2021 in January um, you know we've been out of football tennis soccer and they're those kids are so excited they're com- they're competitors and they want to compete and this is what they do this is how, where they feel the most comfortable and it's been fun to see their their smiling faces you know I mean the you know in the spring it, w- it wasn't a lot of fun you know these kids were you know held up in their house they're out here competing they're out here practicing in preparation of what they hope to come in 2021 yeah a lot of them on their own hoops they're doing st- staggered practices with different groups to keep everybody from their own houses together they're doing all the right things but i think for this women's basketball team in particular tim we'll talk about them because they're out in front of us right now this is going to be a brand new look for head coach mike williams he's got a lot of freshmen a lot of newcomers and you know how big willie is on fundamentals and so while maybe he's not getting to do the training that he wants and maybe the girls don't feel like they're quite in the real practice mode this is a huge opportunity for them and all teams really to really boost up those fundamentals and that's something i'm sure willie's preaching to them right now too getting back to the basics i mean they're they're it, it, you know it's like they're 
you know, six or seven years old, working on shots close to the back form, you know, repetition, uh, just doing the little things, which, you know, we could talk to Willie, and he'd probably say they win about 10 games this year, which he always says, <laughs> and then they end up winning 30. So, uh, I don't, I don't, everybody is excited. The coaches are excited to be back teaching. That's what they are. They're teachers, and this is their academic classroom, and uh, so I know they're excited moving forward. They're excited moving forward. We're excited to move on to this Tim Selgo interview. We're going to break it up into two parts. There really wasn't a natural point to break it. So when he's done answering a question around the half hour mark, we talked for over an hour. So when we get to about the half hour mark, we're going to cut it off. We'll put the other half for you next week in the third edition of the Anchor Up podcast. But here he is, Tim Selgo. Our guest interviews, as always, brought to you by Alliance Beverage. Coors Light reminding you to drink responsibly. Distributed locally by Alliance Beverage. All right, here he is for the first time in two parts, Tim Selgo. And with that, we now welcome on the former athletic director here at Grand Valley State, Tim Selgo, joining us here on the Anchor Up podcast. Tim, how you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Good morning, and Anchor Up. Good morning. You have a book called Anchor Up. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Plenty of also got Make One Play Out. We'll talk about both of your books here during this. But first, let's get the people to know you. You're the athletic director here for 21 years. Give us a little first about you know maybe your background before you got to Grand Valley and kind of uh, your resume, so to speak before you took over sure. as a director here. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Northwest Ohio called Pettisville, Ohio. My father was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. I had two older brothers, uh, and they both uh, played collegiate sports at Bowling Green State University, but I decided to go to the University of Toledo. Uh, so in the late 70s, I played college basketball at Toledo and got both my bachelor's and master's degrees at Toledo, both in education. Uh, I had the intent to be a teacher, a coach like my dad. Uh, I was certified to teach physical education and math and uh, uh, started out uh, teaching and coaching at the high school level. Actually, when I, when I completed my uh, four years at Toledo and played four years of college basketball there, my coach had me as a graduate assistant coach. So I spent one year as a graduate assistant coach in uh, 1980 and 81 and uh, got my master's degree at that time. And then my first year of uh, full-time work was I was a teacher and coach at Springfield High School. It's a suburban uh, school right outside of Toledo. Uh, I taught math. I was the assistant boys varsity basketball coach and uh, head boys tennis coach. I always like to lay claim to having uh, been the coach to lead Springfield to the most wins in school's history that year, which was a grand total of three. Uh, <laughs> and only because uh, uh, I got good advice by the previous coach to make sure I got myself a nice week non-conference schedule where I could get a couple wins in there. So I learned a little bit about scheduling at that time. And uh, From there, uh, my coach uh, – Coach Bob Nichols was my college coach at Toledo. He is the winningest coach in the history of the Mid-American Conference in men's basketball to this day. Uh, he retired in 1986, passed away about six or seven years ago. And uh, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity not only to be a student athlete under Coach Nichols, but also uh, to work for him. Uh, he allowed me to get my master's degree while being a grad assistant coach. Then he hired me back after one year at the high school level as his assistant coach in the men's basketball at Toledo for three years. And then I was named the head women's basketball coach at Toledo. Uh, and I had a, a rebuilding job to do there. I was a third head coach in three years and uh, we didn't have very many players. In fact, we didn't have any players that could make baskets. Uh, that and that's important. a bit of a problem in <laughs> coaching the sport of basketball. So I had to go about recruiting and, uh, uh, I learned about recruiting. I learned the importance of recruiting then. You know, until that time, until my first year as women's basketball coach, I'd never been a part of a losing season in anything in sports in my life from uh, Little League on up. And uh, we weren't real good. And we went 7-21 and 21 my first year. And I realized I could coach my brains out. But if I didn't have players that could make baskets, it wasn't going to help. And uh, uh, thankfully – uh, I signed a player named Kelly Savage uh, who could really uh, light it up, and uh, she got it going for us. In fact, uh, I did a little speaking engagement with uh, Savage & Associates, a financial firm that her father began, and Kelly uh, now uh, is one of the uh, primary uh, advisors for. And uh, I, I did a little research, and, and prior to Kelly arriving at Toledo, Toledo's women's basketball program had 
about a 45% win percentage. And since Kelly, uh, it's over 65%. And so I consider uh, Kelly the one that turned it around. So it's been a good women's basketball ever since. And uh, uh, that was a great experience for me because it was hard. It was really the first time in my athletics life I had to go through something really hard. And the way to solve it was to sign players that could make baskets. Uh, and we did that with Kelly, and we followed with a couple of good players in the two years succeeding. And we ended up uh, – four of those kids in those three years of recruiting became Hall of Famers at Toledo and turned around. And uh, after three years, I was named the Associate Athletics Director at Toledo. So I was uh, very fortunate. My alma mater hired me three different times. I uh, didn't have to move my family. And so I owe a lot to the University of Toledo. Uh, both for giving me the scholarship and uh, for giving me the opportunity to, um, you know, begin my career in college athletics and, and learn so much during those times. You know, I became the associate athletics director and uh, we hired Bill Fennelly uh, to replace me as a women's basketball coach. Bill's going on to Iowa State and he's a Hall of Fame coach and he's done a fantastic job and he really – you know, uh, you know, I think Bill would tell you the cupboard was pretty full when he got there, but he took it to the next level and did a tremendous job. And Toledo's been very good in women's basketball ever since. Uh, and so that, that was a great learning experience for me, but it taught me the importance of recruiting. That at this level, you know, we, we say that it's half the battle. Well, if that's half the battle, we better be working at that half the time. And we better be getting better at that. Half the time, uh, besides coaching and teaching, of course, it's so important at the collegiate level because you determine your roster in college athletics. In high school, you got to take what you can get. In the pros, they have a player personnel department with a general manager and scouting department that pretty much give you the players you got to coach. But at the collegiate level, you determine your roster. So uh, it really was a great experience for me, as difficult as it was early on to go through a losing season like that, I learned, man, we've, we've got to pay attention to that. And I took that throughout my whole career. And when I became associate AD at Toledo in 1988, uh, I spent eight years there. Uh, in today's world, I would be named the deputy athletics director. Back then, we didn't have those cool titles. Uh, so I was just the associate AD, and I was the number two guy. And, and uh, our athletic director, Al Bull, was great. He was a really external person. Uh, a fundraiser, and he really turned a lot of the internal operations over to me. I was in charge of all the men's sports. I was in charge of all of our athletic facilities, and I was in charge of compliance. And so I really dealt with a lot of problems. You know, in leadership in college athletics, uh, you're there to solve problems and make decisions. And I learned that during that time. Uh, that eight years was really valuable for me because – when Grand Valley hired me in 1996, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was ready to become a successful AD right when I stepped through the door. And uh, uh, it, it wasn't easy at times, uh, you know, but I was, I've been very fortunate my entire career to be around some great people. I mentioned my own father, Coach Nichols. During those eight years as Associate AD at Toledo, uh, our two head football coaches were Nick Saban and Gary Pinkle. And uh, Nick was only there one year. We were his first head coaching job, but many people forget that now. Uh, now he's won five national championships <laughs> at the Power Five level. But uh, Nick was our his first head coaching job was at Toledo, and we had a, a great year, nine and two. Then he went to coach with Bill Belichick when Belichick was head coach of the Browns. He hired Nick as his defense coordinator, and then following that, we hired Gary Pinkle. And Gary Pinkle uh, had a 10-year run at Toledo, won about 70% of his game, went to Missouri, uh, led Missouri when they went to the SEC to two SEC East titles in the first three years in that league and the championship game. And Gary's going to be in the College Football Hall of Fame. He was uh, – I always considered him equally as good as Nick. Uh, Nick's just been at some schools that allowed him to do what he's been able to do a little bit more than Gary has. And uh, uh, so those were unbelievably valuable experiences for me uh, as I came to Grand Valley. So that was my path to Grand Valley. Now, one story of my coming to Grand Valley that relates to Toledo is that uh, Doug Doc Woods, uh, who is a Hall of Famer at Grand Valley, uh, 
uh, known more in recent years as our Hall of Fame softball coach, uh, Doug was athletic trainer at Grand Valley for 20 years. And people tend to forget that, although our, a lot of our alums don't, especially our football alums that Doug took care <laughs> of. But Doug was uh, on the search committee, Tyron AD. And Doug had been at Toledo. Doug, uh, Doug began his career, like me, at the University of Toledo. He was a Toledo grad. He was assistant athletic trainer at Toledo. In fact, he was assistant athletic trainer in charge of men's basketball when I was recruited in uh, 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 the 75-76 year. It was my senior in high school. I was being recruited by Toledo. Doug was assistant trainer there at that time. And I remember going on my visit and meeting Doug in the training room down in the old field house at Toledo and uh, introduced, you know, this guy's our trainer, blah, 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 blah. So then I came back in the fall and we're having a team meeting, you know, on day one that school started and uh, uh, our coach introduces our trainer, Mark Schreiner. And I thought to myself, hey, that that's not the dude that I met on my visit. You know, and so I asked him, hey, what happened? That guy with the glasses. I can remember them telling me uh, he became a head trainer at a school in Michigan. I can re vaguely remember that. And then, of course, as time went on in my career at Toledo, I'd met Doug a couple of times. He came back for, you know, a few events. Jim Nice was our head trainer at Toledo during that time. And Jim was Doug's mentor. And Jim was just inducted in the Hall of Fame and things like that. Doug would come back for him. I got a chance to meet Doug. And by then, you know, I was familiar a little bit with the Gliac and Grand Valley, and I was uh, working at Toledo at the time. And so when Grand Valley's AD job opened up, I got a call from Doug. Uh, probably October, November of, uh, it would have been 1995. And he said, uh, our vice president at the time was Ron Van Steelen, and he said, you guys know anybody out there that might be good candidates, uh, give them a call, see if they're interested. Doug called me. I said, sure. I was at that time in my career ready to become an AD, and I'd interviewed for a few AD jobs. I finished second of three AD jobs. Uh, matter of fact, in the four years pre during that four years leading up to there. And uh, so Doug called me, and I said, yeah, I'd be interested. So that's what led me to turn in my credentials to Grand Valley and uh, the interview process. And I'm very thankful that uh, Ron Van Steelen and President Lovers, Don Lovers was our president at the time, hired me and allowed me to have a wonderful career at Grand Valley. You know, you mentioned you met two things here. Um, you know, you were a student athlete, a very accomplished student athlete, basketball player at, at Toledo. And Coach Nichols really shaped your, your vision and kind of how to lead. Um, talk a bit about how, how that, you know, started your career. Well, it, it meant a great deal. You know, what I've always believed that the best leaders are great teachers. Uh, I think the most successful people out there are ones who can teach. I don't care what walk of life you're in. If you can teach, and in some professions, that means communication. If you can communicate well. You know, uh, John Wooden, the great coach at UCLA, has always been a mentor of mine. Now, I, I didn't meet Coach Wooden until he was 95 years old. I got to meet him in person. That was a wonderful experience. But I read all his books, and I followed UCLA, and he was a great teacher. And he always used the phrase, you haven't taught until they have learned. And I think that holds true in everything. When you're a leader and you're trying to lead a group of people, uh, you need to be a good teacher because – uh, if they don't know what you're trying to uh, have them do and you can't communicate that so that they can understand it, then it's going to be a problem. So I've always felt the best leaders are great teachers. And I, of course, was going to be a teacher and a coach and I felt my whole life I've been a teacher. Uh, my father, tremendous teacher and coach. You know, as time went on, I realized how good my dad was uh, as I learned things throughout my life. Mike, uh, as you mentioned, Tim, Coach Nichols, he was a tremendous teacher of the sport of basketball and life lessons. So many life lessons today. Uh, Jake, you mentioned my book, Make One Play. Make One Play is a book written based on one of the lessons Coach Nichols taught all of us. He always talked about, fellas, you never know what one play will lead to, meaning in the course of a game, any play could be the play to turn the game in your team's favor or vice versa. 
And so his point was we would be watching film and he would point out little plays, seemingly insignificant plays during the course of the game and making all of us understand how important that play was, even if there was 12 minutes to go in the game, because you never know what lead. That might've been a play that turned the momentum in our team's favor, or it might've been we'd gone three possessions without scoring and finally ran our offense well and scored and all of a sudden we had confidence again and, and or had the lead again. And that changes everything in sports. It changes everything in life. You never know what one play will lead to. So I had a guy in Coach Nichols that taught me lessons like that, besides being a great teacher of the game of basketball. Uh, so th- those were mentors that made a, a huge impression, obviously, on me that – you know, uh, it's caused me to always believe that any leadership position, uh, you have to be a good teacher. And uh, I can't tell you how many times in my life uh, over the years uh, in athletics, I would uh, think back to some story Coach Nichols would tell me when I was in the car recruiting with him in the middle of the night, you know, uh, or something my dad would say, you know, both of my books, Anchor Up and Make One Play, are filled with stories I learned from both my dad and, and, and my college coach. And, and uh, frankly, that's why I wrote those books. I think they're great life lessons that a lot of people can learn from. Yeah, Anchor Up's definitely a great read for anyone who wants to get kind of the scope of Grand Valley and hear some of those awesome stories, especially the growth of the football team. But, uh, Tim, you talk about the lessons that you learned and the vision that you had when you came to Grand Valley. What was the landscape like at GVSU when you stepped on campus here day one as the athletic director? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Thank you, because it was completely different than it is today. Uh, of course, it was 25 uh, years ago now, almost. Uh, but first of all, the institution was completely different. We were a commuter school, and the only thing downtown was the Eberhardt Center. So at, the entire school was out in Allendale. Uh, half the buildings weren't there that are there now. Certainly... of the housing was not there that is there now. Laker Village had just been built. And we were just in the process of making the transition from a commuter school to a residential campus. And honestly, that was a great appeal for me in wanting to be the AD here. I knew that was what Grand Valley President Lubbers and his vision wanted for the school to become. I knew that's what the leaders here at Grand Valley, they wanted us to become what it is today, quite honestly, a residential campus. Uh, and then and at the time, the plans were in the works for the downtown campus, the DeVos Center. Uh, CHS wasn't there, and uh, you know, a lot of that stuff wasn't there at that time, uh, but that, the plans were there. So as I came here, man, our, our older alums will realize that Allendale today, you know, I, I lived in Grand Rapids. I make that drive out Lake Michigan drive to Allendale today. There are over twice as many stoplights today as there were then. There was a stoplight in Standale where Myers is there. That was about it. And it was a two-lane highway yeah. coming out here. And it went, it got redone. Uh, oh, Tim, when was that? Probably 2001, 2002. Yeah, it was early, early 2000s. In the four-lane highway it is now. But it was a two-lane highway. It wound around, up and down. In wintertime, it was rather treacherous. And we couldn't get people from Grand Rapids to come out to Grand Valley for sporting events. That was, that was a big deal for us. You know, A, we were going to become a residential campus. And I knew athletics – had to play a role in that because none of our students stayed on campus on the weekends back then. There were no parties. There were no, you know, tailgating as such. Uh, And so we had to create the atmosphere to get students to want to stay for, you know, Laker football on Saturday, uh, on Saturdays. And of course we didn't have lights in the stadium then either. So a big moment for us, Tim will remember this, you know, we just decided we're, uh, if, if we can't get Grand Rapids to come out here because, you know, the, the again, when that four-lane highway first went in, it reduced the trip by at least five minutes. Right. Because you just zipped right out there uh, as opposed to this two-lane highway. And, and turning into campus was 
a lot harder. It's kind of hard now because, you know, of the traffic has increased in the last 10 years. But uh, it, it was hard to get to. So if we couldn't get them to come out there, let's take Laker football to Grand Rapids. And let's take Laker basketball to Grand Rapids. And we did that. We took a game, uh, a football game in 97 and 98 to Hausman Field. We took a basketball game to Van Andel Arena. We were part of a, a Thanksgiving tournament at the time. And so we wanted to get people exposed to the high level of athletics that we had here at Laker Athletics. So we had to take it to them. And so we took a game to Hausman Field. We played Ashland there first year, beat them. Then the next year we went and played South Dakota State, who was a, a now Division One. They were Division Two, very good at the time. And uh, they beat us, and the lights went out early in the third That's quarter. That's right. <laughs> uh, they actually went out right before halftime. And I remember thinking, this isn't good. And <laughs> Mark Sharparn, who was our game ops guy at the time, said, we'll get on it. We'll get them going again. And it took the lights, you know, 15 minutes to warm up, come back on. And both we had the lead. Came out, the lights were on, and about three minutes in the third quarter, boom, the lights go out. It's dark. I go, oh, we got a problem. So we got it corrected, but we didn't want to take a game down there again. But what we found out by doing that, Jake, what was really critical in, in taking those games down there, our intent was to get people in Grand Rapids exposed to Grand Valley football. What we discovered was our students loved it. You know, we we would we actually thought we weren't get, going to get very many students to go down there. You know, today it's different. You know, we've got the bus system. Uh, students, you know, they go back and forth to Grand Rapids all the time. And, you know, part of their social life is to go into Grand Rapids. Maybe not during a pandemic now, of course, but uh, hopefully not. But uh, it, back then... We played Ashland. It was a Thursday night before Labor Day. And, you know, we didn't know what to expect. All we knew is we were going to Hausman Field, downtown GR. We knew some folks from Grand Rapids would buy tickets to come in. And about 20 minutes before kickoff, Rob Odieski, who was our marketing man at the time, calls me on my cell phone, whatever they were like then. I think it was Nextel. Texas it was. Talk. It was Nextel. Yeah. Yeah. So – Odie calls me, and I think, oh, we got a problem. And I answer, he's all pumped up and excited. You, you can't believe it. This is awesome. This is awesome. I'm going, what, Odie, what? What's awesome? He goes, this, the lineup for students to get in is a block and a half long. He said, I'm over here now taking tickets, hurrying them through, getting them in here by game time. He goes, that's awesome. We got all these students. And what we found out was we had the largest student crowd ever in a Laker football game moving it downtown and the light bulb went on for us oh yeah this is part of college social life this was the prelude to their evening downtown on thursday night grand rapids right and so that led us to want to have lights in lubber stadium but it's an expensive deal and so after two years of going downtown to hausman uh uh, I'll never forget uh, another great moment with Odie. Unfortunately, Odie passed away, of course. But uh, in April, after the, the second Hausman game where lights went out, you know, we talked about, God, I wish we could put portable lights in just to have a game in Lover Stadium at night. And I kept telling Odie, there's no way we could afford to do that. At the time, you know, the, the D1s were doing it at, you know, 60000 a game or some such sign, number. And I'm in my office in about April or May, a spring afternoon, and Odie comes in about 3.30, and he sits down, and he goes, we can do this, Tim. We can do this. I'm telling you, we can do this. Like, what, Odie? What are you talking about? What can we do? He goes, we can do portable lights in Lover Stadium. I go, no way. There's no way we can afford it. He goes, yeah. He goes, I just got off the phone with the guy from Musco Lighting, and we can do it. Remember, Tim. He, he said he could light it up for us for $12,000 because it's, it's more of a high school size stadium. They're going to bring in two banks of lights. They don't have to be as big as the, they do for the Division One folks. And we can light this thing up well enough. He says, well, we couldn't televise it. We don't have that good lighting. We could have a night game. And so we did that. And uh, uh, I think it would have been 99 in 2000. We brought in portable lights. They weren't great, but it, it, well enough to have a, a night game. And we had our largest crowds ever, largest student turnout ever. And that's when President Lovers realized this is what we need for campus life on Saturday nights. And he proved, I think it was about a quarter of a million dollars put in lights in Lover Stadium. But 
But uh, the portable light deal was Odie's idea. He got us a sponsor. We had fireworks after the game. And that's when we realized, you know, we got to make this a show. And meanwhile, we'll have a football game. And we'll start really drawing crowds week in and week out. And, of course, at about the same time is when Kurt Ains and the boys uh, grew up and matured as players and we hit it big (laughs) on the field competitively. And so our timing was good there. But what people don't remember, the first two games we had those portable lights, we lost them both. We lost to Northwood. We lost to Indianapolis. Yeah. Both times. Thing you guys I can remember going home both times. Sitting there thinking, God, we had a great crowd, great show, night football, fireworks, and we laid an egg again. And uh, But we got it straightened around, obviously, and, and the rest was history. That's awesome. Uh, you, you talk about those years that Kurt Ains and the boys kind of grew up, and obviously Brian Kelly was a big reason behind that, and he's off at Notre Dame now. But he, he didn't get off to the best start here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the process of getting BK here? And then I know you ha- kind of had some pressure. You talk about it a lot and anchor up, but kind of the pressure yeah. to maybe move on from Brian, and you were the one that was the level-headed patient guy, and that really allowed them to mature like that. What was that like for you as the athletic director, dealing with the growth of football, how important it was going to be for the campus, and now all eyes were on you? Well, I have to go back to even before I arrived at Toledo. And I tell the story in my book, Anchor Up, but uh, I'm at Toledo, and a guy by the name of Frank Lauderburg went to our church. Frank had been the coach at Toledo. Toledo was 35 and 0 in 1969, 70 and 71. And that's the second largest winning streak D1 history in Oklahoma's 56 in a row, I think when Bud Wilkinson was there. But, but Frank was a great coach at Toledo. He was an athletics director as well back in those times. He went on to Iowa, uh, didn't do as well as Iowa, but he ended up in the NFL as an assistant coach. And by the time he and I were going to church together, Toledo, He's a scout for the NFL. So after church would be out, you know, we'd go in the back, there'd be Frank, and he'd always wanted to talk sports with me. And I love talking sports with Frank. He was just a a guy that really understood sports. And like I said, he was not only head football coach, he was the AD at Toledo as well while he was there. And my wife, our children were little at the time, and my wife would get antsy because they'd be out in the car waiting for me, and I'm talking sports with Frank, and I'm loving it, and, (laughs) and so on. So you know, it had been in the Toledo Blade that I was one of two finalists for the athletics director job at Grand Valley. And Frank catches me coming out of church uh, that next uh, Sunday. And he says, hey, I want you to know that'd be a great opportunity for you at Grand Valley. He's been scouting in the GLIAC. He goes, I've been to games up there. I've been to games of Saginaw Valley. It's a great league. And by the way, they have a really good young football coach there by the name of Brian Kelly. And, you know, I've done some research on Brian. At the time, Brian was in the top 10 in Division II in winning percentage. Now, he was head, named head coach in 91. So this is the spring of uh, 96 now. So he'd been at Grand Valley five seasons. Uh, he'd won over 70% of his games. And, uh, and f- when Frank Lauderbur told me they have a really good young football coach, you know, I tucked that away because I could take that to the bank. That man knew sports and he knew football and, and he knew a good coach uh, when he saw one. So I came to Grand Valley with that in mind, knowing Brian's record, knowing, and Brian, uh, Brian's four years younger than me. So I don't want to tell everybody how on this podcast, how old Brian is, but I'm 62. So I'm, I'm young AD. Most of our listeners can do basic math, Tim. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Uh, So I, I was 38 years old when I got here. I'm a young AD. And we got this young football coach who's been here five years as a head coach. And, you know, the one thing that I think everybody needs to remember in, in Division Two is almost every head coach you hire is going to be a first-time head coach. Uh, you're not going to hire a finished product. And, you know, as I, an example would be, I, I would use the phrase uh, back then when uh, Bill, Bill Parcells had been retired. You know, we're not going to hire Bill. Bill Parcells isn't going to come out of retirement and coach at Grand Valley. You know, Urban Meyer's not going to come out of retirement to coach at Grand Valley. You know, he, he might take the USC job for $5 million a year, but he's not going to come be the coach at Grand Valley. We're going to hire probably someone that's first-time head coach. And therefore, you better work at developing that coach. And just like I needed to develop as an AD and the leader of the department, 
Brian needed more development as a head coach. And I've always said, you know, he was our head coach for 13 years. He learned uh, how to win. He learned how to lose. He learned how to make corrections in his program during that 13 years. He went through just about everything. And at Notre Dame, four years ago, they were 4-8. and eight. That's not a good season at Notre Dame. And I went down to spring practice that spring, and I was just watching Brian. I could tell, no panic. He was confident. He made some changes he needed to make. He knew they would get it corrected. And lo and behold, they've won over 30 games the last three years and you know, off to a good start this year. But, but Brian, you know, uh, was clearly talented. Tom Beck had hired him as a grad assistant, immediately made him a full-time coach. Then he made him his defensive coordinator. Tom Beck's in the College Football Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, great coaches know great coaches. And he doesn't do that unless he is highly confident in, in a young guy because Brian was in his late 20s at the time. So I knew we had something that, man, we could really build on this. Um, and then uh, shortly thereafter, a year later, uh, Doc Woods retired as our athletic trainer. We hired the late Todd Yeager as our head athletic trainer. Todd came to us from Michigan. He had been Michigan's football trainer. So he worked directly with Lloyd Carr in the late 90s, the national championship year, the Rose Bowl championship, and so on. And when Todd got here, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, he said to me, you know, we're doing pretty good to have this guy here at Division II. And that further solidified for me, he was the right guy. Now, in year four, we went five and five. This was Brian's ninth year as our head coach. Kurt Ains, David Kirkus, and the boys were all freshmen, uh, redshirt freshmen. And, you know, as talented as they were, and you could see the talent in certain plays, they weren't very consistent like most freshmen are. And, you know, this is Division II college athletes, big boy football. And, you know, I don't care how talented you are, you got to go through some of those growing pains. Uh, the next year we started out one and four. Kurt Ains was six and nine. In his first 15 games as our starting quarterback. Okay, this is probably a uh, eventual Harlan Hill Award winner and best player in the history of our school. He started out six and nine. And we won the last six games in a row in that uh, their sophomore year to go seven and four. And that turned it around. They learned how to win uh, in those years. And, and we won the three games in the end. All were last second wins. We either stopped, uh, we stopped Tech and we stopped Wayne State on two point conversions to win the game. And then uh, David Sante kicked the field goal at the buzzer to beat Hillsdale at Hillsdale. And that's how we went seven and four their sophomore year. And the next year, Brian, getting back to Brian now and his development as a coach, uh, you know, first of all, started recruiting. Let's go back to recruiting. I talked about that earlier. Uh, you know, you could see when I got here. Jake, you know, we had won five conference championships in the last eight years in all sports. And you could see we were, we were good in all sports, but there was, there was another great team or two that was above us in almost every sport. And, and football was relatively so. We had great success in football. Jim Harkema, Tom Beck, and now Brian Kelly. We, but we never won a playoff game. And we'd never done anything in the postseason. So, you know, we, you had to go, go through that. That's, that's sports. You know, I always would tell coaches that took over programs in Grand Valley, they always wanted to do it, do it right away and have success right away. And when you're talking about having patience with sports, you're talking about years. It takes years to build a program. And, you know, more than anything, when I got here in 96, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to build programs. We wanted to build programs that would consistently, year in and year out, be at the level we're at right now, where we're, you know, let's face it, we've dominated the GLIAC in the last 20-some years with the President's Cup. Uh, and, and, and Brian helped pave the way for that because, uh, you know, five and five was not a great year. But, you know, what happens? You're going to have tough times in sports. And we still had the guy that was talented, and he and his staff were working hard, and we had to make some corrections facilities-wise uh, in the late 90s as well. Our facilities weren't that great. Now, we're, they're outstanding now, but back then our football stadium was very much a high school stadium. And the football building in the end zone was more of a concessions building with rooms for halftime 
than anything like it is today. Uh, you know, we have the Jamie Hosford Center today. That's magnificent. The, in the late 90s, we had to raise money to just make that the home of Laker football and to start with a locker room and some meeting rooms. And we added the OD weight room after that and so on. But we needed to do those things to get players like Kurt Ains and David Kirkus and, and so on. And then uh, and we have those guys now. Uh, you can tell uh, those, those, those fellows could play. And uh, when the light bulb went on, we knew we would have something special. But we had to live through that. We had to live through some tough times. And, and when the light bulb went on, it really was special. Now, one last thing that Brian did in 2000, or in that year we were seven and four, uh, that would have been uh, 2000. And the only two people in the country that I'm aware of that were running the spread offense at that time, spread no huddle, were Louisiana Tech and Northwestern. And Northwestern, Michigan fans uh, aren't going to like this memory, but I'm pretty sure Northwestern beat Michigan 54-52 at Northwestern, running a spread no huddle with – far inferior players, but Michigan's D-line was absolutely gassed. They couldn't, they couldn't rush anything, and they couldn't tackle anything near the end. In Louisiana Tech, I think it was Jack Bicknell was his name, was the coach down there that implemented the spread. Sonny Dykes was down out at all these names now, but we sent Brian. Brian knew that's what we needed to have with these guys, with Ains and Kirkus and Brent Lesniak and Reggie Spearman. I mean, we had speed. We had guys that could really run, and we needed to spread the field and go no huddle, and nobody knew how to defend us for, you know, several years because uh, nobody D2 had seen that. And Brian, we sent Brian down to Louisiana Tech. He went over to Northwestern. They came back and implemented the spread, and it was Katie bar the door. I mean, we averaged 55 a game in the next two years, I think, somewhere around there, yeah. and nobody could stop us. Uh, so, you know, those are – the things that uh, Brian, and then then to Brian's credit, in 2003, after all those guys had graduated, we won another national championship all, all on our defense. Cullen Finnerty was a freshman. Uh, Cullen had a lot of growing pains to go through uh, as a freshman quarterback. But our defense, we were with Keontae Marshall and Duane Boone and um, – you know, uh, uh, Lucius Hawkins, all those guys. And we were just phenomenal defensively. We completely changed our game. And Mike Tennessee was our running back. We relied on him and uh, went down and won another national championship. So those are just the things you go through. From there, we build our program. Now we have the winningest program, I think, in the history of college football. But it wasn't easy getting there. I think everybody forgets that, you know, that uh, these, these were hard times. We were, Kurt Ames was 6-9 and nine now. <laughs> and I think there was some wondering, is this the guy? Is this supposed to be the guy? We welcome you back here now. Jake Levy, Tim Knott back with you after that great first half of our conversation with Selgo. And, Tim, like we talked about off the top of this podcast, boy, he is just so forward-thinking. And it's so fun to hear the way that he ties every little moment from his times in Toledo and really took and internalized what he learned and used it to project to others and really grew as a person and tried to share his knowledge with everybody. Right, times in Toledo, times as a high school coach, basketball, tennis, things that he, he took, t- just talking about what he saw you needed to do, recruiting when he became the women's basketball coach, he realized that the lifeline of his program was going to be recruiting. That was the most important part of your program. So if that's the most important part, you better spend half your time doing the recruiting, getting the players. And um, it, 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 it's funny because Bill Fennelly took over for him when he was done uh, coaching at, at, at Toledo. I was at, at Central Michigan, Bill Fennelly's Toledo coach teams, uh, as a student at Central, and some, some of the players that Tim actually recruited, I saw play. Um, and Dana Drew was the MAC Player of the Year and one of the all-time greats. And uh, part of the, the Drew family, Bryce Drew and uh, uh, that f- family, well, she was an outstanding player that Tim recruited to Toledo. And uh, so it was, I got to see some of his players play, not knowing what was going to happen in 96 when he hired me. That's awesome. And, I mean, like, 
we talk about Tim Selgo and the long-tenured staff. You've been here for 25 years. A lot of people that came under Tim Selgo were here for years and years and years, and that's something that he also brought over from Toledo. I didn't realize he basically came up just through Toledo, and that was kind of how he grew from being an athlete to a coach to an administrator, and that was really his only stop before he came to Grand Valley State as an athletic director. It, w- it was, and, you know, the he wanted great people in place, and he wanted the longevity. He wanted to keep coaches here. He he provided contracts that would incentive that that were insane and laced in terms of keeping them here to make it a tough move for them to go to the Mac or you know go to the you know another job. Um, so that he wanted that longevity. He wanted that consistency within his coaches because he knew. That's how he could uh, continue to win. Really great stuff. That was part one. We'll have part two for you next week. The Anchor Up podcast brought to you in part by PNC Bank, the official bank of GVSU Athletics for the Achiever in You, and by Earhart Construction, the official construction company of the Grand Valley Sports Network. All right, let's get to some segments. First up, we have the team of the week. This is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Here for you now more than ever, confidence comes with every card. And this week's team of the week is one that, Tim, I know you remember well. The 2004 baseball team, they finished as national runner-up, went 46-16, and 16, including an incredible 17-2 and two mark at home. You couldn't come to Allendale and beat the Lakers on the diamond in 2004. But the team had terrific stats. Eight of their nine lineup members hit over 300. The team mashed 43 homers, scored 472 runs that year. Meanwhile, the pitching staff boasted a 385 ERA. And this was the number that really jumped out at me when I was looking at the stats, Tim. 358 strikeouts compared to just 161 walks. They were really, really efficient on the mound and really good in the lineup as well. You know, that was 2004, and I can go back, and it seems like yesterday. And all those guys, Matt Rayfield, you had Ryan Leister, shortstop, nicknamed the Gnome, and he was such a uh, energetic player. Brandon McFarland in center field, Joe Brunin, Casey Robrand. That team was just a great group of guys. When you talk about a baseball team, loving to be to their Scott Allen, um, the Hall of Famers that are off that team, in terms of they're currently in the Hall of Fame, um, speaks to the volume of why they were successful. But uh, what a great Not to run. mention their coach in the yeah, Hall of Fame Steve, as well. Steve Lyon in the Hall of Fame, and just a great Matt Rayfeld, left-handed pitcher who could throw. I mean, he, you could have called him Everyday Eddie because he could throw every day. In fact, he did in terms of uh, winning the regional. He pitched the first game. We lost that first game. He came back and threw the championship game. Uh, beating Ashland, which was actually his hometown, and Ashland didn't recruit him. Uh, so just a great team, a lot of fun. What a, what a great experience it was down in Montgomery, Alabama, making it to the title game, uh, 3-0. and um, Lost to Delta State, who was loaded, that Delta State team. I'll tell you what, they were loaded, but it was, it was a great game, a lot of fun. The atmosphere was awesome, and uh, great to reminisce and looking at these numbers and thinking about those guys. Yeah, they lost 12-8 to in that game to Delta State, and it's not like the College World Series you see on TV here now where you have the best-of-three series. So the Lakers, even though they were undefeated at the College World Series, it was a one-and-done with Delta State. and didn't really, maybe didn't seem totally fair at the time, it, it, but know, them's the breaks. Yeah, it, it was. They, they had lost a game earlier. They had to play Central Missouri on a Friday night. And Central Missouri was loaded that You're year. You're talking about well. Delta State. Yeah, did. Delta State lost earlier, so they had a, a winner-take-all game to get to the title game against Central Missouri on Friday night. Won that game, um, but they had you know their pitching staff was so deep and, the, and they were still set up pitching wise. Grand Valley was three and zero, won on Thursday, and actually the inactivity kind of played a role in that because of when we played, we were actually off from Thursday. We played one game between Tuesday and Saturday. Wow! And uh, just just how it set up and when we played and when we won the semifinal, beating Rollins College. Um, and to, so, you know, the inactivity, you know, you're practicing, but there's a lot of dead time down there. But it was a great experience. Montgomery did an unbelievable job hosting the uh, Division II College World Series. Uh, so it was a lot of fun, great memories. You mentioned Matt Rayfield. He was the GLIAC Pitcher of the Year that year, one of ten all-GLIAC selections on that team. They split the GLIAC title that year. And by the way, that was the first of a seven-year stretch where the Lakers won the GLIAC each and every year. Won the GLIAC and the GLIAC title each and every year that it was played. 24 consecutive wins in GLIAC tournament action during that that, uh, time frame. Unbelievable. That GVSU 2004 College World Series finalist team is your team of the week brought to you by Blue Cross. 
blue shield. Moving on to our Laker spotlight now. This is presented by Ziegler Automotive. And this week we look on the gridiron for senior Tyler Bradfield of the GVSU football team. The linebacker has made quite the reputation for himself in his skill, work ethic, and leadership. Any coach you talk to on that staff absolutely loves Tyler Bradfield. If you could give Jim Lewis 11 Tyler Bradfields on that defense, I think he'd take him in a heartbeat. The Rockford, Michigan native is 214 career tackles, 21 tackles for loss, seven quarterback sacks, so his numbers are really good, too. He's a two-time Coastside Academic All-American and has twice earned GLIAC first-team honors. And, Tim, I know you know Tyler very, very well, his family very, very well, and this is a well-deserved spotlight. Well, what a great kid. His sister played soccer here, yep. uh, uh, was an outstanding soccer player. And I'm going to tease something here. And maybe in the next seven to ten days, we're going to have some Tyler Bradfield information coming out. Uh, so you got to keep continue to listen to the podcast, stay up on the GVSULakers.com, because there's going to be some great um, Tyler Bradfield news coming out here shortly that um, is exciting, and it's going to be really uh, groundbreaking because we've never had individual receive this uh, honor maybe. So okay. uh, we're going to tease it. Stay tuned in a couple weeks. And uh, I know Tyler's excited to be coming back for the 2021 season. And uh, what a great, great young man. And, uh, uh, you know, he gets it done in both classrooms. He's a 3.99 student. I want to know who gave him the, the A minus. <laughs> Are you kidding me? How he missed that one point. But yeah. uh, terrific. And that's great to know that you've got some inside scoop. We'll definitely be on the lookout for that for Tyler Bradfield. So that's your Lakers Spotlight presented by Ziegler Automotive. A reminder that the Grand Valley Sports Network and the Anchor Up podcast brought to you in part by Homewood Suites Grand Rapids. Enjoy all the comforts of home at the only extended stay hotel in downtown Grand Rapids. It's also brought to you by Uccello's where great food and sports come together. Our final segment today, it is time for this great moment in Laker history. This is brought to you by the Randy Caterberg Agency. And Tim, you've got a great moment. This is a fun one this week. You know, I was uh, just looking back. And, you know, th this podcast has allowed us to kind of go back through and, and find some interesting things in the history of Laker athletics d during uh, my time here and even before. But this was a, a moment that really uh, started the ball rolling when you talk about Grand Valley State Athletics. Winning the regional championship on in the GVSU arena in 2000. So I, I, I went back through, and it was really a significant mark, which kind of, it was Grand Valley's first ever regional championship. Lakers had never won a regional championship in any sport wow. at, at the NCAA level. Um, they had in the NAIA level. But um, uh, that, that team, led by Kathy Viss, uh, who was a transfer from Georgia. She was from Zealand. You know, she played in the SEC, and she was an all-SEC performer. She kind of just got tired down there. They had a coaching change. She called Dean Scanlon and said, hey, you know what, I'm thinking about coming home. That's a call you take. Sure. Uh, that's a call you take from uh, Kathy Viss. Um, and then the team that she had around her, uh, three, three Hall of Famers were you know, on that team. That, that group ended up, you know, it was really that, that group started the ball rolling. They were 101-37 and 37, um, as, as seniors that year. Uh, went through the GLIAC, you know, 16-2, uh, and two, the GLIAC tournament champions, went to the um, Elite Eight. And actually, unfortunately, back then, they didn't reseed when he went to the Elite Eight. Grand Valley State was uh, played Hawaii Pacific in the first-round Elite Eight matchup. Hawaii Pacific was undefeated, hadn't lost a game all year. In fact, only three teams that year reached double digits against them. Grand Valley was one of them. Um, in terms of the second game, lost 15-13. Scoring was a little different back then. Uh, three members on that Hawaii Pacific team played for the Brazilian Olympic team. Wow. So you were basically playing the top team in Brazil. And the Lakers played them in, in that Elite Eight matchup loss. But uh, just some outstanding individuals. Uh, Christy Kale, Hall of Fame setter. Carly Miller, Hall of Fame outside hitter. Sheriff Faisenfeld uh, was the uh, kind of libero back then and also uh, became the uh, Hall of Fame setter. Um, Jill Overweg and Kathy Viss was a, a first-team All-American. Um, again, it was first-ever regional championship played here. It was a great, you know, exciting time. Um, uh, Dean Scanlon was the coach of the year, but winning that regional championship here—first time we hosted a regional championship. What was and that atmosphere like? You know, it was great because you know that that team was successful. They finished 31-4 that year. Uh, Northwood uh, was a really good team, and Nor Northwood and Grand Valley. Grand Valley had was two and one against Northwood going into that um, uh, the regional final. Northwood was really was really good. Um, they had a lot of international kids playing back then, and Grand Valley beat them 3-0. 
um, to advance the Elite Eight. Great atmosphere, a lot of excitement on campus, and that's when you could really you could really feel it starting to percolate in terms of Grand Valley State Athletics. And that regional championship is our moment of the week. It's brought to you by Zeke, the Randy Caterberg Agency, excuse me. And as we look at that, that kind of started the ball rolling, like you said, to the volleyball team eventually winning that national championship in 2005. 2005. Right. They were back you know, in the regional, in the Elite Eight almost every year, it felt like, during the 2000s, all the way up until 2014, you know, it, when they got back to the national semifinals. You know, they were there in 05, 08, 2014. I mean, this is a team that went to the Elite Eight, Tim, 07, 08. 2010, 2014. So in that stretch, since they won the national championship, they were still a regional dominant team for a very long time, which is very hard to do. Well, yeah, the Elite Eight went in 2000, 2000, 2001, 02, 03, 05, 07, 08, 10, 14 were all Elite Eight appearances. Um, and then also making the semifinals, the Final Four in those teams in 01, 02, 03, 05, 08, and 14. Um, so uh, I know Coach Scanlon wants to get back to those, you know, days. And, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen without players. I mean, sure. we, we, we look at the amount of Hall of Famers on those teams from 2000 to 2014 is crazy because I've been on that Hall of Fame committee. We've in, inducted a lot of those girls and a, a lot of those ladies into the Hall of Fame. And uh, what a great atmosphere. You know, we hosted, hosted the Elite Eight here in 2002, I believe. Um, and uh, that must have been a blast. It was it was great. Uh, lost to South Dakota State, the eventual national champions in the semifinals. Um, they were they were really good. Uh, what a great atmosphere hosting Mercy. We had almost 2,000 in the in the in the Elite Eight game. We had over 2,000 uh, fans in the stands here. Uh, so it was just a great atmosphere. A lot of fun to host those events. And uh, we're looking forward to get back on the court here so we can keep doing that. Yeah, quick story before we get out of there. Those of you who don't know my background, I was at Wingate University back in 2014 as a graduate assistant. I actually called that Southeast Regional that Wingate hosted. They beat Armstrong State in an unbelievable five-set match in front of a packed Cuddy Arena down in Wingate, North Carolina. Wingate goes on to the Elite Eight. They play Grand Valley in that Elite Eight the next weekend. And, of course, so there I am coming off this emotional win, all rallied up behind the Bulldogs. I watched that Elite Eight match on my laptop, you know, not really understanding who Grand Valley was yet and come to find out that just a few years later I would wind up being on the uh, Grand Valley roster myself and on the other side. So uh, that was my first taste of Grand Valley State Athletics, really, in a loss to them. So I, uh, I understood the losing side as well. Yeah, well, it, it was a, you know, just that era of athletics and, and is second to none. And, you know, we're still experiencing, experiencing it. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to reminisce and, and, and look back on it. It sure is. And that's our show here. Week two is in the books. Don't forget, next week we have the rest of that conversation with Tim Selgo. Hope you enjoyed part one. Tim, as always, it was fun working with you again this week. Great job, Jake. All right, that's our show, the Anchor Up Podcast, brought to you by Metro Health, your health, our passion. Have a great week, everybody.